People always say you should run for office and I always say, nope, I'm building an army of young people that are going to understand the importance of knowing who's in office and how to hold them accountable. And that is going to be where the systemic change happens, not by one person running for an office. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Angelique Hinton, another in a series of conversations with entrepreneurial leaders of pro-democracy organizations in Pennsylvania. She is the co-founder and executive director of PA Youth Vote, which is building coalitions among young voters across Pennsylvania to give them the tools they need to become advocates in their communities. Angelique spent a two-decade career in client services for Vanguard, but has moved on to trying to change society through her organization and other related activities. We talked about her path to starting PA Youth Vote and how that's going. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Angelique Hinton with Pennsylvania Youth Vote. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Angelique, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Angelique Hinton. I am the executive director of an organization called PA Vote. I am also the president of the Norristown NAACP. And basically, I spent about 20 years working in corporate America and then left because I wanted to do something more fulfilling. And so I am currently spending all of my time educating people about the importance of civic engagement and civic participation. You don't see that many people who spent 20 years in corporate America and then switch over, right? You kind of get caught in the lifestyle and the world of corporate. Can you tell me about what you did in corporate America and what was the breaking point or the change point that made you switch over? I think it's best kind of maybe if I take you through the journey of my life, I grew up in a underserved community of color. We had many struggles in my household, addiction, abuse, all of those things. And then I had children pretty young. And so I had to work. And my work led me to Vanguard, which is where I spent 20 years servicing some of the most ultra high net worth clients that they have. And so we were a ongoing asset management services and we did a lot of things. We created trust accounts so very wealthy people could 
pay less taxes. We did tax loss harvesting transactions so people could pay less taxes. And we made exceptions pretty much for most procedures and policies because those clients had a great amount of wealth. I saw working there, the culture was very different from what I had grown up in. And so getting to know those people, it became clear to me between what I was doing at work and just, you know, again, the difference in the culture and, you know, some of the ascension, some of the people I worked with. So most of them were very educated. They were either financial planners or attorneys, many of them. And so it just started to like dawn on me the difference between kind of where you start, right? And then how you can have the potential to end up um, in a much better situation in life. We also create a lot of trust for these very wealthy people's children. So the notion that some of these people that are wealthy just worked hard is not necessarily always the case. And so I did that for 20 years. And then we had the whole Trump election and just some of the dialogue that was going on around that became just too much for me. And so I felt like I needed to do something purposeful, something that, you know, could actually help me impact some sort of change. And so I left and I did some political organizing. In the political organizing, I thought I'd make change there. And I grew to find out very quickly that elected officials pay attention to communities that vote. And because I came from a disenfranchised, marginalized community, that community did not vote. And I saw the direct impact that would have on resources, investment, presence in the criminal justice system, et cetera. And so I no longer could continue to work in the political realm. And so now I spent all my time kind of in a nonpartisan way, taking all of the things that I had an opportunity to learn through this journey of life and helping people understand in those communities that have opted out of voting because of their lived experience, government has not worked for them and help empower them by understanding that when you're not voting, you're really making it that much easier for elected officials to ignore you and that we really have to show up and we have to be civically engaged and participatory if we really want to affect the change that um, is very much needed in this country. You know, that window into the world of rich people must have been quite something day after day for that number of years. Did you find yourself angry? Did it just seem like normal? How did you, coming from a less advantaged background and having kids young, how did you cope with that disparity along the way? So it was it was interesting that you asked that question. I mean, I you know, you hear all of these different terms like, you know, I literally felt like I just I had children. I needed health care in this country to have health care. You have to have a job. So it was survival for me. Like I had to keep this job and I did very well. I honestly earned one of the highest awards the company offers its employees in a department where I was probably one of the least educated and had had one of the most, you know, traumatic childhood. So that was interesting, but I mean basically what I did, I I learned through that experience. I learned so much about again how, you know, the world does lift up 
you know, or give a head start to people. It's not just that some of these people have worked hard. I also learned, again, the differences between me and some of these people that I worked with. And, you know, it kind of helped me kind of really think about what I wanted for my children. Like when you grow up in a community like I grew up in and you don't have those opportunities to see that other side, you really don't understand what's even possible, right? Or how much trauma, disenfranchisement, marginalization you're experiencing, right? Because that's all you know. And so it helped open my eyes to this great world of possibilities, but then also made me very focused on understanding that we have to figure out a way to really help other people understand that, right? So that they can see that what they know is not all they can ever be. Did you feel political? Were you political growing up and while you're working in the corporate world? I was absolutely apolitical. Um, Like most people that come from the community that I come from, um, voting was not a big part of what I did or what I thought about. I didn't think about policy at all and how that had created these inequities. I had no clue at that time. What really drove me to become political is I have a son, actually two sons that end up ended up being, but a son struggling with addiction. And so it was the most awful thing a family can go through. But through that, I met someone who had worked for President Obama. And they were starting to teach people how to be organizers because the healthcare law was potentially going to be repealed. And so we did a lot of organizing and sharing stories around that issue. And then the country was doing that at the same time. And I was able to see through that process really how powerful your voices are and how you can really, if you organize, affect change. And so that was, I guess, the introductory for me into really checking into policy and how to take action and be constructively advocate for things you want to see. And then from there, I went and actually worked in political organizing, um, helped most of the state elected leadership that is in my area get elected and actually worked in the state Senate for about a year. Can you tell me about the sort of the actual decision to quit your job? Like, was that a hard one or was that an easy one? It was extremely hard. One thing about the organization I worked in was it provided a lot of security. It was an awful work experience for me because, like I said, I felt like I could never be Angie who came from this community, right? Like I always felt like I had to go in and code switch or, you know, leave my blackness at the door, whatever it was, however you define it. But, you know, so it was, but it was, they had great benefits, right? It was great vacation time, great 401k. So it was very scary for me, but um, it became just so overwhelming as I got more and more informed and educated and then saw a lot of the racism that was bubbling out of the 2016 election, I just knew I could no longer stay there. Like it was just not no longer a place where I could be. When Trump first came on the scene, did you take him seriously? Did you react to like his announcement or at what point did, you know, that, what you're perceiving start to really bother you? I mean, immediately he was offensive and, you know, things he had done historically were offensive and concerning, but I think many of us initially thought 
Like he was a small segment of the population in this country. And then as I guess his following grew, it became more and more scary and just heartbreaking. Honestly, I am a biracial child. And so my mother is white and my father is black. So I have felt the consequences of racism my entire life because my mother's family disowned her when she married my father. There's a whole side of my family I've never met just because of the color of my skin. So it wasn't something that was new to me, but even my mom, I remember her saying like, I thought we had gotten so much further past this than we actually have. Do you think that we have moved backwards on racial issues or do you think we've exposed what was already there? I'd say both. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've exposed what was already there, but we've made it more comfortable for people to be just more outward with their racism. And so that in turn has created, you know, a sense where now people, you know, politically feel like we can even just roll back policy where I think they would not have felt that was safe to do prior to like 2016. You've sort of hinted at this, but like clearly you're getting a new political education through the work that you're doing post quitting the corporate world. I mean, right now you're a professional running a, a group, a political group, you know, even if it's a nonpartisan one, tell me about the changes that, that occur within you as you start to work in politics and policy. You know what? It's a constant evolution and growth. I'm constantly learning new things and I'm constantly better understanding how policy has created these inequities and inequalities. I literally spend all my time now having conversations with people, uncomfortable conversations, as I learn, including my mother, right, who grew up very wealthy and white, that sometimes she says things now that I didn't realize before were problematic, right? And and she is, of course, she's my mom. She loves me. But your lived experiences shape who you are. I really just spend all of my time at this point looking at things from a more of a racial equity perspective than I ever did before. Honestly, you know, I was very naive in some regards too. And so now my eyes are completely wide open. And so um, I'm no longer afraid to kind of push people right? And kind of have those conversations that are uncomfortable, but are going to force them to kind of grow. Because I think that's that's where we need to be right now. Everybody needs to be really willing to listen and grow. When and how did you get involved with the NAACP? Interestingly, as I mentioned, I worked for a state senator, which was an awful experience. And so it was right around the time that Kobe Bryant had passed away. And, you know, people in the Black community, of course, were overwhelmingly sad about the tragedy. And he was a hero for for many. My then employer made a very offensive statement, which I feel was very unnecessary at that time about Kobe's past. Your employer, the state senator? Yes. Yeah. you, You refer to that as an awful experience. Are you referring to that or were there other things... No, she was she was very abusive to her staff. I coming into that situation 
like I said, I had established a reputation for myself. I had worked for 20 years. I had won the highest award. So I had a reputation, right? But many of the people that were employed by her were young. And this was like their first kind of real job in the political realm. And so what she would do is she had this bullying culture where she would ultimately become so abusive that the person would kind of ultimately kind of withdraw. And then she would say they didn't want to do their job and fire them, or they would leave in just such distress. Well, I just really despise bosses who are bullies. I'll tell you that. Well, yeah. So one person almost actually, he almost had a nervous breakdown. And so it got to a point midway through my working for her where I literally reached out to HR and was like, listen, if somebody doesn't, because when you come into the Senate, you don't have the opportunity to have the years of training, like an organization that Vanguard gives you on how to manage people. But essentially you do manage a staff of people. So at first thought she was my Senator. So in addition to me working for her, I want her to succeed. So can we bring someone in and help her understand these things are not acceptable? And so they did. And she just bullied them as well and nothing worked. And so ultimately after 10 months, I resigned in protest and I lost my health insurance. My son actually relapsed because he was on medicated assistant treatment. And I had warned her and HR that that would happen if I left because he would no longer have the insurance to do that. And so he relapsed and I lost my health insurance and ultimately nothing was done to her because the policies are in this country, like unless the voters do something, there's no real repercussions. And so I left in protest and I filed a formal complaint. But what I did was I documented everything she had done to those other people, because it's very scary if a state senator, you know, you want to work in the political field and a state senator says awful things about you. So I documented what really happened and then let them know that I would be available to basically refute anything if need be. And and so, yeah, so after I left, she made this offensive statement about Kobe Bryant. And so the NAACP got wind of it. And so they asked me to come in and help them understand the situation. And so I initially went in for that and then kind of became a member and just started talking again about the need for empowerment after coming out of, again, mind you, One of the other things that was problematic about this senator was, as I continued to try to find ways to reach in and help the black community or the underserved community, those were just not things she was really interested in because, again, they spend a lot of their time just trying to firm up people they know are going to vote. And those are, are not people that have been underserved and have become disenchanted with the political structure. And so... When I got there to the NAACP, I started talking to them about this really cool work I was doing with young people. I just became a member and then ultimately became the president. I think there's one thing about the political realm is it is very permeable and you can move up if you show that you know what you're doing and you're willing to work hard for sure. How did you get connected to PA Youth Vote? So again, coming through that whole process, as I mentioned, right, when I left the Senate, Basically, I I was unemployed for a period of time. And so 
someone reached out to me and said, when we all vote, Michelle Obama's organization has a job opening. And the job was charged with going into Philadelphia school districts and helping 18-year-olds get registered to vote. And so we were going to partner with the school district in Philadelphia, and then I would work with teachers to build teams in high schools to do voter registration. And so it was right around COVID. I had two weeks before COVID shut schools down. But in that time that I spoke with teachers, they said the same things to me. They were all saying, I can register students myself, right? What I need is something to help them understand why they should vote. And so a light clicked off in my head. The problem was I was working for Michelle Obama's organization. So they have to be kind of careful because of who she is and right messaging. So we continued on through that year, but that light had gone on. And so what we realized, I started in March. And so I had that whole year with those students through November, um, was that, you know, if you can engage young people on issues they care about and then connect that to local elections, right, you can get them to invest in wanting to be more civically engaged and more civically aware. That's how we started PAUFO. Once the election ended, me and my co-founder, who was a teacher in the Philadelphia School District, decided we were going to start an organization and we were going to do that. We were going to help young people understand the importance of voting in every election, connecting that to issues they care about. And then also, though, a big part of what we do, because again, I, I live with the fact that when you grow up in underserved communities and that's all you know, that's all you know. And so it's important for me to help these kids understand really their potential. And no matter where you come from, you can really be anything you want to be if you work hard. So a big part of what we do is also leadership and advocacy, helping them understand how to use their voices to hold leaders accountable, but also really advocate for changes that they want to see. And just because something is does not mean it has to always be that way. When you go to start an organization, even if you're experienced executive or have learned a lot along the way, it turns out to be a whole lot of work and a big challenge to get anything off the ground. Can you tell me about the entrepreneurship involved? How did you raise money if you did? What have you built it into? So again, we started off with this great idea and, um, you talk about money. I worked for a year or more without pay. I got no pay, right? Because we're trying to build this organization. But basically I have this passion, right? And I have this model, right? That is unbelievably inspiring. But I feel like this is a struggle too, right? Like I've been blessed to have great people who want to join me in this work, who also do it on a volunteer basis, many of whom have graduated from Harvard. So I have an amazing team who just believes in the vision and the mission. And so that is an advantage that I had though. But in the NAACP role that I have, we just went through a process where through the Recovery Act, money was dispersed to different places, right? And so we had money dispersed to our county And we were supposed to try to help people put in proposals 
right? Just like you're saying, people doing work in the community to put in proposals to actually get funding. And it is terribly inequitable. That process is inequitable and it's extremely challenging. If you don't have the fortune that I have, many people who are doing great things in the community and have great ideas for how to create change end up walking away because they don't have the structure or the support to get the funding they need to really turn that idea into a program, turn that program into a proposal, right? And then get the funding and then scale out. Did you get funding for your organization through that recovery act? No, not through the recovery act. No, because that was a government function. I feel like it should have, right? Like, and, and again, who is in power makes a difference, right? In Montgomery County, where I live, they don't feel like it is an investment they should make into making sure young people are civically engaged or educated, right? That's something they kind of want to keep their hands out of, even though we have a very underfunded school district who needs programming, right? Because they can't pay. However, in Philadelphia school district, I just paid 50 students this past summer through a partnership with Philly Youth Network and Urban Affairs Coalition, the school district, we all collaborated to pay 50 students to do summer programming where they literally learn how to be community organizers or how to be activists. This is another example where everything that happens in my life, I think of in terms of how to share that story with people to understand why you should pay attention to who's in power and what decisions they're making. So I'm not, I'm still not clear about how you went about building this organization and what it has become. Tell me a little more about that. So again, we just had an idea initially, right? Um, We continue to work with the school district. The way we really built our organization is collaboration. And so I say to people, collaboration will save this nation. And so with each collaboration, people saw the work we were doing, right? More eyes get on the work you're doing. And then it just grows from there. People see, and then they talk to someone who may have some funding and say, hey, there's this great organization I saw, you know, maybe we can invest in that. But literally it was through working with the bigger organizations like the Urban League of Philadelphia, the mayor's office in Philadelphia, the commissioner's office in Philadelphia, the school district, other grassroots organizations that enable you to do something that you could never accomplish by yourself. But again, that creates a space for more people to see the work you're doing and the the value and the impact of it. Then funders will ultimately um, start to send some funding your way, which will enable you to bring in more staff, right? And then get more equipment that you may need. We do a lot of paying student stipends to do voter registration or to participate in, in events. You know, the more collaboration, the more you can kind of get your, your name out there, the more likely you are to get some funding. So where are you on staff and funding right now? Well, right now we we have gotten funding. We're not fully funded. So many of my staff still work voluntarily or on a stipend when we can pay them something. You know, I am just now getting to the place where I'm actually able to be paid. I still don't have health insurance. We are still emerging as an organization very much. But again, 
people realize the importance of the work that we do. And so I know, I, I don't ever doubt that we will ultimately get the funding that the organization needs to be completely fully funded where we can have a fully paid staff year round, but it's, it's a struggle. I mean, being an executive director is a struggle. How many people would you like to have if you were fully funded? Like, what do you think is the right size that you're aspiring to be? I mean, it's hard to really say because basically right now we are able to bring on two organizers. They'll be starting next week, right? The area that we're in right now, see, it depends on as we get partnerships with more schools right? Different. We're growing geographically, then we need more people. But for right now, you know, we have organizers finally, because I was doing the executive director and a lot of the organizing field work, right? We have someone that writes our curriculum. We have someone that helps us with grant writing. We have a staff to get us through the schools that we're in right now. But then again, that's, that's the mission, right? As we continue to do this work, continue to get more eyes on the work we're doing and more school districts reaching out, then we have to seek additional funding so that we can ultimately pay, you know, the people we need to do that work. What kind of impact do you think it has when you do work with a school? Do you have a sense that, or any measurement of like, do more people vote? Do you change, uh, you do, do you materially change the lives of the people that you're interacting with? How do you understand what you're up to and what, what it's doing? So in two ways. So yes, right. Having young people be able to understand how local government works, right. Um, and how personally who's in power impacts them on a day-to-day basis definitely drives up the number of people that actually not just vote, right? Because it's not just about voting. Voting alone is not going to get the changes we need. They also learn how to use their voices um, to advocate for themselves. Simple things even, right? To me and you. So for instance, one of the students with COVID, they weren't going to have a prom. Well, through working with us and understanding how to to do different ways of advocacy, one being a petition, they started a petition and they had a petition. And guess what? They got a prom, even though the school district wasn't going to give them one. Right. So there's that. And we have data to support everything we do. We have a person that does research and circle, like does a lot of research. So there's data to support that when you're engaging young people, the way we're engaging them, they definitely will turn out. Plus there was a higher turnout in 2020, I think the youth actually outnumbered the older people in the 2020 election, right? But for me personally, in addition to that, right, it's the knowledge I know they take away, but it's also helping them develop as leaders. And so we have a student, for instance, Zion, who started with us in high school, who literally barely said anything when he first started coming on our little virtual calls. And through the work we've done, the knowledge he has, now he's helping organize and he's in Penn State. So he's working to build a group in Penn State College that's focusing on college students. When they come to school, let's think about and make a plan on how you're going to vote. Do we need to do a mail-in ballot? Are we going to change our address? Right. So they're thinking about those things, which means they are impacting so many more students, but also 
when he first came, like I said, he was so shy. He would have never done any of this. And at the beginning of the summer when he came home, you know, because we are truly student led, we have students on our board. We look to them to help us understand our what our strategy should be. And, and when we have press conferences, when we're asked to speak, we bring students. And so the first press camp conference, he was so nervous. He could barely, like, and Last week, we did a press conference with, we did the full day civic engagement on behalf of the mayor's office. We partnered with them and he did a press conference with the mayor of Philadelphia. And when I tell you the amount of confidence he walked up to that podium with and how beautifully he articulated himself, it was incredible. And so that for me, knowing that primarily we focus on communities of color, low income, underfunded school districts where most of the time they might not see themselves ever being able to stand next to a mayor and speak. And we are creating that confidence through the work that we do. And that is changing the world. People always say you should run for office and always say, nope, I'm building an army of young people that are going to understand the importance of knowing who's in office and how to hold them accountable. And that is going to be where the systemic change happens, not by one person running for an office. You're running a nonpartisan enterprise. Is there any part of you that would like to have a partisan wing or how do you think about that issue? No. And, you know, I know people probably think that when people say, oh, they're nonpartisan and they're doing civic engagement work that they really are. Me personally, I have been let down. And and like I said, my senator that I worked for is a Democrat. When I went to my local Democrats, who I was part of their committee to ask them to help me hold her accountable, they refused. When I look at all of the things we promised people in 2020, black people in particular, right here in Montgomery County, there is such racial inequity. And so I have challenged the local Democratic Party time and time again to do better, right, and making sure you are actually representing the interests of all people, right? And they have not. And so I honestly feel both parties have failed people of color, low-income people, And so for me, I am legitimately at a point where I'm like, we need to just, all politicians need to go, right, of both parties, and we need to really get back to electing public servants. Right now, it feels like, yes, we're in a space where, like, maybe there's one party that is kind of not, you know, in it, right, to be a public servant, and one might be a little more so, but at the end of the day, right, Both parties have been in leadership and you see where we are from a racial equity perspective, racial justice perspective. And so I want to challenge all elected officials of both parties to try harder and do better. And so that's what I teach these students, right? Like our job is to just take who's running, right? Understand what their platform says they're going to do. Pick the one that aligns most with your values, and then we're holding every one of them accountable once they get elected, because a lot of times when they do, they start compromising on the things they promise, in particular to those communities that might tend to vote at lower numbers. And so we have to hold them all accountable to what they said in their campaign agenda. Do you think that the stuff that you're trying to teach should be taught by the schools themselves? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. I do think so. And that's why we are doing a lot of work. I understand I have had a very unique lived experience, right? From being biracial, right? To being poor and, and going through all of that trauma, to working with some of the wealthiest people, right? To working in government. I've had like a very unique experience. Many people have not had that. So I think that it should be taught in schools, but they need help. And so that's why our organization does create curriculum to help teachers actually make sure that students understand how local government works, right? And why their school district is underfunded. That's a a legislative decision here in Pennsylvania. And so that's a big part of our model is to support schools in getting this information to students. We also provide a weekly virtual forum for students to come and be taught this information. So it has to be a partnership. And so that is what our organization strives to do. You've talked about collaboration and partnership. As you've been in the political world for a bit, you know, I've been interviewing a number of groups in Pennsylvania of late, and there's all kinds of organizing going on big organizing and small organizing, very local organizing, who have you run into in terms of other organizations that you think are important or doing good work that kind of touch al- alongside areas that you're interested in? Um, So many, there's so many, too many to name. There's organizations like for our future that make sure that people are educated on policy Right. And so they understand how this policy urban league also of Philadelphia does a lot to make sure that the black community understands how these policies will impact them. New Pennsylvania project does voter registration. I like to say though, again, voter registration without the education component, right. Is we need the education as well, but then there's little organizations that people might not know about, right. Like, um, Youth United for Change in Philadelphia that works with students, or CMAC, who works with the AAPI community. And so they're doing more than just voter registration, right? They're actually servicing the community. And then as part of that work, they try to make sure that they have the resources and the information they need to vote. But there's a number of them. I do feel that some are better than others at being collaborative. And I strongly believe that until we get to a place where we're putting collaboration over competition, right, we're not going to be as as impactful as we ultimately could be. What you're doing and what these other organizations you're doing, to, to me, is like part of the work of running a democracy. It's really important. It's important uh, at lots of different levels. And there is some effort at the national level to sort of undo the democracy, to keep people from voting, to make it more difficult, to not abide by the results of a national election. You might have noticed some efforts in in that regard. How do you think about connecting those big abstract concepts like democracy at risk nationally and around the world with the lived experience, the day-to-day of people for whom Maybe they're too busy putting food on the table, dealing with uh, health issues and things like that to have the time 
or the wherewithal to think about the big stuff? How do you make that connection or do you? You know what? It's interesting you ask that. I almost feel like sometimes it's disrespectful to go into a community like the one I grew up in and say democracy is at risk because democracy has not worked for them, right? But what I can tell them is and give them examples of ways that policies are being rolled back to make it harder for them to ever reach that place of racial justice. And so that's kind of like the lane I live in is really kind of being respectful to the lived experience of my audience. Right. And it changes the conversation because I will say when I go in to that community, that's how I have to address it. Right. Because I know their lived experience. However, I also do racial equity work with a collaborative primarily of nonprofit organizations, many of whom are white, middle-class people. And I say, it's a different conversation with them. My conversation with them is, listen, if you want to save democracy, right, you need to really be doing more to hold local leaders accountable to making the lived experience of these people feel like who's in power matters or else you're going to lose your democracy because they're going to completely check out of voting and participating and you need their vote for the big races, right? You need it at the statewide races that are happening this year. And right now, the community I came from, whether it was one party or another, nothing has gotten better in their day-to-day lives. Nothing has made them feel the difference. And so now when we need to mobilize them to vote in statewide races, It's hard. So I say to them, listen, you need to be fighting to make sure these people's sons are having justice in the criminal justice system, right? Because if you don't, right, Martin Luther King said it, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, right? Now your daughter's rights are at risk, right? So it all kind of comes full circle, right? Either we're fighting to make sure everybody has rights and equality and equity, or nobody is ultimately going to have it, except for rich white men. And probably they're at risk, too, if people are angry enough and willing to follow someone who channels their anger and says they can fix everything. Yeah. You see all these people that are, you know, going after one six, right? These people that are now going to prison. I have to change my conversation depending on who I am speaking to. And I've become very good about doing that. The problem is sometimes the people that government has worked for don't understand that they need to do that. So when they come into these communities and say, well, you have to vote or your democracy, that's never going to mobilize those people. I'm glad you're having the chance to articulate that. I think it's important for people, perhaps some who listen to my podcast to understand that disconnect. And I appreciate you taking the time. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? No. I mean, I think we kind of covered everything. I just think, you know, it's really, really important for people to understand, again, two things. One, right, that unless and until we start really getting to the place like I thought we were in 2020, where we had all agreed we were going to move forward on a lot of these policies, right? Democracy is going to continue to be at risk. No matter who you get in an election this year or next year, ultimately you will still see 
a depressed vote, right? And so we need to be thinking about how we can, you know, be more responsive to the needs who have been the most left out if we really want to move this country forward to a place where everybody has equal access to, you know, justice, where they can thrive and not just survive. And then also too, really like think about the importance of really engaging young people. Young people right now are so underestimated. They are brilliant. They are determined. They are efficient, right? And they have, people make fun of them all the time about these phones, but they are getting all kinds of information, right? So let's figure out ways to help them understand how to best use that information to really create the change that they so desperately want to see in this country. Well, I really hope you get the chance to grow it to the organization you want it to be. And uh, appreciate the work you're doing out there. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. That was Angelique Hinton. She's at payouthvote.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.